All right. Well, welcome to Heart of a Warrior Podcast. I'm here with Dr. V. He's looking pretty dapper, as you can see. Um, the creator and president of Heart of Warrior Ministries. And really excited, Dr. V, about the topic today. Uh, it's going to be good, especially in the times that we live in right now. But Absolutely. Before we do that, I just want to you know reach out to everybody out there. Uh, the classes that Dr. V does, the compass, the map, and the guide, We've been doing those classes now, and they're going to be coming to a close here within the next three to four weeks. And so just want you to know that uh, the new dates for the new classes will be coming out soon. Mm -hmm. So be ready for that, to sign up for that. Um, and I, they, We will be doing all three again like we did. After this, I get back from Ireland. After he gets back from Ireland. Can't forget <laughs> about the Ireland the Ireland trip um, where he eats all these lobsters. But um, <laughs> but we just want, I just want to make sure, yeah, so you're going to have a few months. Uh, for that, but anyways, uh, those will be starting fresh and new here sometime in this, uh, sometimes in late summer or fall or beginning of fall. So be looking for that. So be ready for that. All right. Uh, but we're on the topic, which I think is going to be good, Doctor V. Uh, the topic of worldview. Yeah. Which is basically how we see the world around us. So yeah. explain to explain to them about well, it's probably better to uh, actually understand how it's connected with what we've been saying up till now. Um, are, one of the, the premises that's scripturally based for Heart of a Warrior is understanding that the transformational core of your being is what the Bible refers to as the heart. The heart is divided into four components, your central beliefs, your core values, your worldview, and your motives. And not only that, but there's a relationship between the four. Your central beliefs establish your values, your values inform your worldview, your worldview conditions your Motives, your motives energize your behavior, and your behavior will always reflect the health of your heart. So when we talk about worldview, we're talking about actually, Mike, the lens through which we view the world and try to make sense of our observations. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a worldview, the set of perceptual attitudes that give them the kind of a prescription for the glasses okay. through which they view the world. I mean, that's for the, for the audience that might be viewing this podcast, that's really what I have in my hand are my glasses. It has a prescription. Without it, um, it's hard for me to see certain things, but when I put these glasses on because of the prescription, all of a sudden things are cleared up. I can make sense of the objects. I can tell their shapes and their colors better, uh, their distance. So that's what a lens does. So in essence, a worldview is the lens through which you view the world. Right. Now, that lens um, and this prescription, there are multiple prescriptions. So there are multiple ways somebody can view the world. But as it ties back into what we just started with, and at its very um, succinct, irreducible minimum, your worldview is your beliefs plus your values. Right. Whatever you truly believe at the core of your being, whatever is the foundation from which you derive clarity uh, about the world around you, um, and the values that arise from those beliefs, those together form the prescription of the lens you will view the world through. Okay. So that's why it's important to understand that what gives life to your worldview, which are your beliefs and values, need to be calibrated to the heart of God. They need to be biblical beliefs. They need to be biblical values. So there are a number of definitions about worldview. Let me just share a couple of them okay. with you, if I could. For instance, according to James Sire, who is um, the author of The Universe Next Door, which is all about 
worldview. Here's how he describes it. He says, a worldview is a set of presuppositions, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the basic makeup of the world. Another one, uh, Leland Riken uh, defines worldview this way. He says, a worldview is a map of reality. It's the framework of beliefs, values, and images within which a person makes decisions and conducts the business of, life, of living. And finally, Alan Toffler of Future Shock defined it this way. Every person carries within their head a mental model of the world, a subsequent representation right. of reality. Right. So that's what we're talking about. And that's why when we define worldview, we're talking about the set of perceptual attitudes we have about life, which are generated by our beliefs and our values. Right. So that's what a worldview is. Right. Yeah. And I love how when you put in, in the book, um, the primary cause of distorted and corrupted beliefs, values, and worldviews is sin. Mm -hmm. You know, and the fact that I, Romans 6, 16 and 17, the end of the and 17, where it says, when you have been set free from sin, or sorry, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I remember how, when I came to know Christ, how what I saw of my own self and the world was changed. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I asked Christ into my life, when I was, when I was set free from sin and, and Jesus came into my life, my worldview changed without me making it change. It was just now that I have a new, I have the person of Christ in my life to cause me to see things in the right manner, if that's right, right to say. And so, um, um, so could you share a little bit of um, why is being set free from sin so important when it comes to how we view the world around us? Well, let me, let me explain it this way. I think it's a good analogy. Um, you, you understand what cataracts are. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> at the age I am, I have to be concerned about them because I'm sure they're going to make their appearance sooner or later. But it distorts your vision. Right. And it, all of a sudden it becomes cloudier and less focused. And so sin, in essence, are the cataracts that need to be removed That's so, so that you can view life clearly. That's so good. Yep. And you don't even know. The, the, the interesting thing about cataracts is that it doesn't happen to you overnight. I mean, it, it happens gradually, so gradual that you don't even know what's happening. Right. And the only time you realize that you're not seeing as well as you thought you uh, were seeing is when you go in for your checkup. Uh, and, and the doctor says, well, you have cataracts. And they're now to a stage where we have to consider removing them. Right. So that's what sin does. It's insidious in that it creeps in. It's not a dramatic, right. all of a sudden, Wouldn't it be assault. great if it was? <laughs> yeah, well, in, some ways, in some ways, you know. <laughs> but it's not. I mean, Satan is a coward. He, he always goes around the corner. He's always trying to find this, this path of least resistance right. so that he can get, move his way in and, and, and perform his, his terrible work in our lives. Right. And it's incremental. So the idea is, is that your vision or your worldview becomes really distorted. Right. And that and sin are the cataracts that must be removed to clear up your vision. So good. So good. Awesome. So uh, let me just uh, approach it from a, an, another direction. There are reasons that you and every human being ask questions about, why am I here? Am I making any headway? Will what I do have any lasting impact? You know, we've referred to it. In the past, when you look at Ecclesiastes 3, 10, 11, it says that God places eternity into each man's soul, yet not so that he knows what God's done from the beginning to the end, but it gives him a sense 
of the eternal. And it, and it it's, gives him that God consciousness. It's called general revelation. And so consequently, it compels every human being, because we can't even uh, claim origination, every human being to ask the questions at particularly difficult times in their life. Maybe it's after a terrible disappointment, a loss of a job, a, a tragic loss of the life of somebody that they loved or cared for. And it compels them to ask these questions. Why am I here? Right. Am I making any progress? And will I do have any lasting impact? And so, you know, when we talk about these questions of purpose, progress, and permanence, these are embedded into our soul by God. Right. And so there are questions that we seek answers to. And a worldview will generally um, answer those questions, whether it's a corrupted worldview or it's a biblical worldview. So what are the big questions of life? When we talk about the big questions of life, what's real? What's actually real and what's not real? Okay. Is there a God? In other words, is there just one God or are there many gods? Is God close to us or is he distance? Is there even a God out there? Right. Um, then we ask questions, where did we come from? Were we just um, animals of a higher order? Are we just a strange combination of dust mixed under the right circumstances? All of a sudden we arrive out of the ooze? <laughs> or has there been some design to uh, our, our coming into this world, our, our beingness, so to speak? So where do we come from? Uh, is it by chance? Did we evolve? Are we... Um, the product of some divine mindset. Uh, so we ask those kinds of questions. And then we also ask questions, how should we live? I mean, every person is born with a sense of right or wrong. Um, that gets calloused over time by the same sin that you and I just discussed. And so this conscience that you're given, which it refers to in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it talks about the fact the sense of right or wrong is instilled in the heart of every yeah. human being. So that's part of God's general revelation. That's how we say something like one of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He talks about an orange wedge and he's saying that somebody demands that from you and you say, no, that's mine. Well, how do you know it's yours? And, and why, do you, why, do you, why are you upset because somebody wants to take it from you? <laughs> Why does that bother you? Right, right. And so this, this whole idea, we do have embedded in our soul a sense of right and wrong, even though it gets distorted over time. The longer we live apart from Christ, right. it gets calloused. It gets um, so that we lose the sensitivity towards those differences. The grays in our life become much larger than the black and whites. Right. But still, the questions of what's right or wrong, how should we live, arises out of this God consciousness, the sense of the eternal that Ephesians 3 talks about. And then we ask questions about where are we going? Am I just going to be a food for worms? You know, am, do I live this life and then all of a sudden um, I just disappear? There's nothing beyond this existence that's in front of me. And I think some people desperately hold on to their life and do everything they can to prolong it because they believe at the end they're going into nothingness. Right, right, They'll be exactly. annihilated. Right, exactly. So the whole idea of, of the sense of where am I going? And there's got to be something after this. Right. Even though we might say with arrogance and oftentimes arrogant ignorance, well, no, there's nothing but this life deep down inside because of this God consciousness. Right. We know that's not true. Right. 
So those are the kinds of questions that give rise to a kind of an understanding about a worldview. Every worldview seeks to answer, let me, let me narrow it down this way for our audience. Every worldview seeks to answer five basic questions. Uh, what is ultimate reality? Does God exist or does he not exist? What is ultimate reality? Right. What is our understanding of humankind? Are we animals of a higher order or have we been created in the image of God? Um, the third question that we generally ask, what is the major dilemma that we face as humans in this world, the major problem we're trying to address? Um, and then the fourth area is, what's the solution to that dilemma? Yeah. And finally, what's our ultimate destiny? Will I be, as we've talked about, uh, just food for worms, or is there something that's going to be happening well, after I die? Uh, before you keep going, I love how uh, John Eldridge puts it. He goes, at the end of your life, the last thing you want to do is have someone go up at your funeral and say, he was a really good man and cooked great waffles. <laughs> yeah. He goes, there's so much more to your life than that. Oh, man. so much more, so much more. Um, so again, when we're talking about worldviews, we can talk, uh, let me give you an example of, of a worldview. If on a political platform, capitalism is a worldview. Right. It has a certain set of foundational beliefs and values that undergird the proposition about capitalism and free market trade and the rest. Socialism yeah. is a political worldview. Communism is a political worldview. Um, so those are some. Now, when you talk about, let's say, for instance, an existential type of a worldview, um, atheism, for that matter, is a worldview. It sees the world in a certain way. It has a certain set of beliefs and values uh, that, it, that it ascribes to and that conditions how they view the world and how they respond to the world and how they make sense of the world. It's through that particular prescriptive lens called atheism. And, and so even, even denominational distinctives could be considered worldviews. Yeah. Catholicism versus Pentecostalism versus Reformed theology versus, um, you know, Baptistic theology. All of these religious worldviews see the world in a, in a certain way. All the isms. Yeah. All the isms. Anything that ends in, the, uh, in an ISM-ism is a worldview. Yeah. Postmodernism. Um, secular humanism, uh, atheism, these are all worldviews. Yeah. And so is it any wonder that when you're listening to a um, newscast that people are coming from all different directions? The questions you need to ask is what are the underlying beliefs and values that they, they ascribe to that gives them the perception that they're voicing now in what may seem to others as ridiculous or it really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So the idea is if you're not proactive about what forms your worldview, your worldview will be formed for you. Right, exactly. Um, you, you, made a, you made a great comment in the book, The Rattling of Savers. You made a, a, something about how your beliefs and your values, they have to be connected. Mm -hmm. Did you? I mean, do you remember talking about that? Sure, what, sure. What, what, what? I mean, what can you can you have beliefs without values, and can you have values without beliefs? Or? Well, you can describe two beliefs that bear no correlation with how you behave. Okay, there you go. What we're talking about when we talk about central core beliefs are not necessarily what you might verbally proclaim because it bears little correlation or relationship to how you behave. But how you behave over time 
will always reveal what you truly believe at the right. core of your being, even though you can't articulate it. Right. So whatever that is, whether it's on the forefront of your consciousness or it's deeply embedded in your subconsciousness, your beliefs will always establish your values. Okay. Yeah. There's the connection. Okay. And so your values, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, are the filter through which you process all decisions of any consequence. So the hills you're prepared to die on, the principles you intend to live by, but they're always the filter through which you make decisions of any consequence. You rely on your, whether again, whether you can describe what they are or not. Right, okay. So, but what always gives rise to those values are your beliefs. So when you take those two together, as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, your beliefs plus your values, that will form your worldview. Your right. beliefs establish your values. Your values inform your worldview. Your worldview conditions your motives. Your motives energize your behavior. Behavior will always reflect the condition of your heart. So now, good. for the sake of the audience, I want to make this subtle distinction. <clears throat> that I believe <clears throat> there is a basic difference um, between what I consider to be a Christian worldview and a biblical worldview. Now, let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about. As a matter of fact, let me just share with you something that I, I wrote recently on, on this subject. It, it will save time uh, and help the audience to understand what I'm talking about. I said in this article that I make a distinction between a biblical worldview and a Christian worldview. Christian worldviews often have basic similarities between them, but they, they reflect a predisposition contingent on some denominational distinctive or theological preference based on a particular framework. Mm. Such uh, uh, worldviews are overlaid, if you will, um, by certain beliefs and values that are related to the doctrines of that specific framework. For instance, Reformed theology or Calvinism differs from Baptistic theology, although there are some similarities, such as the preeminence of Christ and the authority of Scripture, but there are some distinctives. So in other words, it's a subtle shift in your prescription right. of your glasses. Right. So if you're viewing your understanding of, for instance, biblical truth through the lens of Reformed theology, you're going to see things differently, especially when it comes to subjects like election yeah. and who is really saved versus Baptistic or Armenian theology which is uh, underscores the importance of free will in making those okay. decisions, that everybody um, has the possibility of salvation once they capitulate, surrender their sword, and uh, respond to, to the gospel. So Christian worldviews will often have layered over the basics that are fundamental to the faith a particular perspective or veneer gotcha. on top of it. Right. So when I could take men through phase one of Heart of Warrior, as you know, Mike, I have them write out their biblical worldview and as opposed to a Christian worldview. So here's what I mean about a biblical worldview as, as opposed to a Christian right. worldview. A biblical worldview reflects a fundamental adherence to God's nature, principles, and commands found in Scripture, avoiding where possible denominational or theological overlays. Yeah, I remember you saying that. Again, in my understanding, a biblical worldview stands above and over sectarian Christian worldviews. For many of us, this distinction is not so clear because we often conflate 
a biblical worldview with a Christian worldview. We're calling it one and the same when they're not. The difference will be apparent when you start to really look at it. So what I have men do is drive their worldview strictly from Scripture. Right, yeah. Not coming in with a bias or a predisposition or a set of understandings that they either been born with or brought up in or acquired because they go to a certain denominational right. church. And so they need to be looking at Scripture, which is the source of the truth. Yeah. So I'm not opposed to somebody who holds a position of Reformed theology or Baptistic theology. But when it comes to worldview, I see it more pure right. in the sense of removing those veneers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember when you had, I've got a, my biblical, you know, my, my, my personal mandate, biblical mandate, you know, all that, all that stuff. And I remember when you had me do it when it's stuck on scripture. Yeah. And when it's, it's unbelievable, the foundation of that to my life now. Yeah. From the class. Yeah. The realization of this is my biblical, you know, this is, this is where I stand when it comes to the Bible and what God's called me to be. Mm -hmm. It brings such a foundation and clarity to my calling toward, towards me moving forward in life, just having that. Well, I mean, even when you're talking to somebody about your faith, it may not be a part of your faith. Right. I mean, conversations I have with my grandsons all the time, I always start from a position of a biblical worldview. Yeah. Because that's the, the glasses I'm going to put on, right. regardless of what question that they ask right. me, right. I'm going to start with that as the premise. Right. You know, that God uh, does exist and he's actively involved in his creation, that humans, every one of us, have been created in the image of God, even though that image has been distorted by sin and by the fall, yeah. that what Christ accomplished on the cross restores that image uh, afresh to you again that the biggest dilemma that we face in life is sin, yeah. which you don't hear a lot about that anymore, and even in many churches. Um, but that is the biggest dilemma, this insidious, creeping virus that weaves its way in and, and uh, captures our heart um, and constricts it. And so we don't have the stamina or the endurance to run the race any longer because of the constriction and the restraint of sin in our life. And that the, the solution has never been what we can accomplish on our own. It's the solution is Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross. Right. And our ultimate destiny for those who have received Jesus as Savior and Lord is eternal uh, life with our Creator. Uh, if you haven't received Jesus as Savior and Lord, it's eternal separation from your Creator. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's your worldview when you start with that premise. Now, to give you kind of a, an idea about what we're talking about in terms of, let, let me juxtapose three different uh, worldviews so you kind of have the idea of um, what we're talking about. Let's, let's suppose for a second now we're going to look at the worldview of a secular humanist um, and the worldview, of, in this case, of a Buddhist. Um, compared to the worldview of a Christian, as I've described it. What's the difference? All right, let's start off. The first question that we have to answer is the reality, ultimate reality. So the secular humanist sees ultimate reality as the natural world. There's nothing beyond it. Right. There's no God in the sky. There's nothing beyond what you can sense with your senses, what you can hear, taste, touch, feel, that kind of a thing. So natural world is their reality. A Buddhist is nothingness. Right. That's the ultimate reality, is that they're constantly in a, in a, in a uh, process 
of squashing any sense of identity so they can be part of this great nothingness. Right. Now, the Christian, when it comes to a sense of ultimate reality, we know that to be God. Right. So you can see that these three different worldviews, secular humanism, it's the natural world. The Buddhists, it's nothingness. Right. And for us, it's God. Now, you can understand how that's going to taint how you engage the world. Oh, 100%. Okay. So let's talk about the second question about personhood. So how do these three compare when it comes to this whole idea of human personhood? Secular humanists believe that humans are highly evolved animals, animals of a higher order. Right. That's what we are. That's really something to aspire to. We said, what kind of animal do you want to be when you grow up? That kind of a nonsense. Then a secular Buddhist or a Buddhist believes that we're part of a greater whole. Okay, yeah. We're just part of a greater whole. Whereas a Christian, we're the image bearers of God. Right. Markedly different. Oh, yeah. And that's why the greatest achievements that ever happened to the world happened out of the hearts of Christians. Yeah. Because we're God's image bearers. <laughs> All right. So what about the third area of dilemma. What's the biggest dilemma that we have to face? For the secular humanist, it's always been ignorance. That's the big problem. Hmm. What's ever caused any corruption or distortion or chaos in the world is due to ignorance, okay? A lack of knowledge, in other words. Okay. The Buddhist believes that the biggest problem is human desires. That's what we have to get under control. That's what we have to master. Right, right. That's what we have to somehow... Um, destroy within us so that we can be part of this great thing called nothingness. Right, right. Okay? So for the dilemma for them is human desires. That's our big problem. For the Christian, it's always been sin. Right. And what sin has done to us as humankind. So what's the solution when you compare these three? Well, for the secular humanists, remember what they feel the problem is, is ignorance um, a lack of understanding, what do you think would be their solution? Wisdom. Wisdom or education. education. More education. Right. That's their solution to everything. That's why you see so many people today that are um, in charge of the Department of Education pushing um, more and more money. They just think more money is going to solve the problem, they, that we need to have a better educational system from a human point of view, that that's going to solve the dilemma that we face is just better or more education. Right. It may not be better, but it's more education. Right. For the Buddhists, the solution to the problem is enlightenment. Right, right. Okay? But for the Christian, the solution has always been Jesus Christ. Right, right. Nothing added, nothing taken away. Right. Just Jesus. Right. All right. So then the final question is about destiny. The secular humanists believe that our ultimate destiny is to live the dream because once you're dead, you're dead. You don't exist anymore. Right. So live the dream to the best of your ability. Whatever you perceive that dream to be. Right. Doesn't matter. I mean, Solomon even talked about secular humanism, though he didn't coin that phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes when he used this amazing phrase 29 times. He used the phrase under the sun. What he was really saying that is if you live your life on a horizontal plane like secular humanists do, devoid of any vertical relationship with your heavenly creator, everything you turn your hands to do will end up being meaningless right. or vanity or worthless. Right. So he was actually talking about this whole worldview of secular humanism that lives their life on a horizontal plane because they don't believe anything else exists. Wow. There's no vertical, there's, no, there's nothing beyond what we experience in front of us. Right, right. 
Okay, so the destiny, live the dream, and then you die. You know, that's that's something to really aspire to, right? You can, yeah, can. well, you can. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter who you have to trot over, right. who you have to destroy no. to get there. No. Because your whole sense of right and wrong has been distorted and shaped by this worldview right. exactly. of secular humanism that suggests that, you know, um, it's lack of education. I mean, just live life to the best of your ability, whatever you deem that to be, and then you die. Right, right. For the Buddhists, it's nirvana, reaching finally nirvana. Whereas, what is the name for this nothingness that they, they want to be a part of? Isn't that great to aspire to? I just yeah. want to be nothing when I die. And then Christianity, it's heaven or hell. Right. That's the ultimate. So that kind of gives you an idea with regard to um, three different worldviews and how they see the world differently. So think of that for a minute about any problem, situation, circumstance, or encounter that comes your way, how it's going to be viewed with these mindsets and how it's going to be resolved by these mindsets. Right. So what you believe and what you value really matters yeah. because it'll shape your worldview, the prescriptive lens you're going to use to view the world around you, make sense of your observations. And so consequently, if part of your worldview is a resistance to the existence of God, then it's going to be a distorted worldview that's going to produce really a distorted life. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about worldview and how important it is that we develop a biblical worldview and try to resist, as Christians, layering over veneers of understanding, even though they have some value, um, and they they talk about our denominational distinctives, which we can certainly celebrate in our understanding. But at the end of the day, it's what the Bible has to say about these issues. Yeah. Ultimate reality, personhood, the dilemma facing mankind, the solution to that dilemma, and then what is our ultimate destiny? Right. That's important. That's what a worldview is. So much, you know what I what I love about what I love about talking to you, Doctor V, is that the clarity of what you say. And you'd think, you know, uh, as much teaching that you have done, and as much that's out there that you have, um, the the clarity that it brings, you think, okay, it makes sense, right? But then when I was reading in your book, when you put down in, in in September 2002, at the address of the United Nations Prayer Breakfast, Ravi, Ravi Zacharias, a noted Christian philosopher, summarized the thought trends by, by decade and provide insight into some of the issues involved. And if I can read this, because sure. it just goes to show you the, the progression of the world is opposite yeah. to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And you, it's, it's just unbelievable how clear that is. But he said this. He said, in the 1950s, kids lost their innocence. They were liberated from their parents by well-paying jobs, cars, lyrics, and music that gave rise to a new term, the generation gap. In the 1960s, kids lost their authority. It was a decade of protests. Church, state, and parents were all called into question and found wanting. Their authority was rejected, yet nothing ever replaced it. Watch this. In the 1970s, kids lost their love. It was the decade of, 
Oh man, I can't even say that word. Nihilism. Annihilism. Annihilism, dominated by uh, dominated by hyphenated words beginning with self, self-image, self-esteem, self-assertion. It made for a, a lonely world. Kids learned everything there was to know about love, and few had the nerve to tell them that there was an indeed a difference. <laughs> and then, in the 1980s, kids lost their hope. Now I'm 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 56 years old. And I literally can see this from the years that I've lived. Yeah. Right? In the 1980s, kids lost their hope, stripped of innocence, authority, and love, and plagued by the horror of, of a nuclear nightmare, large and growing numbers of this generation stopped believing in the future. Okay, now the last one is in the 1990s, we lost our ability to reason. The power of critical thinking, and that's what I love. What you always tell you tell men that want to join, that want to step into your classes. I'm going to force you to think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Lost our ability to reason. The power of critical thinking has gone from induction to deduction, and very few are able to think clearly anymore. I have often said that the challenge of the truth speaker today is this: How do you reach a generation? That listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah, and I mean, you can even take a look at what's happened in 2010, in that decade, and now in the 2020s, and you can see this gradual disintegration and separation, this chasm that's being created between followers of Christ and those who are not followers of Christ, mm -hmm. and how easy it is for a generation to completely sideline anything biblical and call it archaic wow, just okay. take a look at what's happening to the christian church today we're being ostracized marginalized kicked to the curb question called archaic uh anachronisms um and all these other words to uh somehow uh cordon us off from any voice and how society should be lived and how it should be managed and how it should be led right so that they're free to do whatever they want to do right. without being encumbered by anything that tells them there's a basic difference between right or wrong, that that truth is not relative, right. that there are axiomatic truths. I mean, there's, there's subtle worldviews that creep into the core of, of, of the heart of men and women. Um, this whole idea about individualism, the story of I, you know, that we're the center of the universe. That's kind of a, a worldview. What? What do you mean? I'm not the center of the <laughs> <laughs> Consumerism, the story that I am what I own. Or maybe nationalism, the story that my nation is God's nation. We're hearing a lot of that today. Yeah. Um, how about moral relativism, the story that we can't know what is universally good? Mm. How about moral, how about scientific naturalism, the story that all that matters is matter? <laughs> Or New Age, <laughs> the story true. that we are gods, or postmodern tribalism, the story that all that matters is what my small group thinks, right. or salvation by therapy, the story that I can come to my full human potential. So all of these are, are these insidious worldviews. And so my encouragement to our audience is to understand that cleric can only come at the foot of the cross, right. that there'll come a moment in your life, if it's not there already, where everything you've turned your attention to, your allegiance to, 
has disappointed you, discouraged you, or let you down or betrayed you. And it'll cause you to revisit again those questions we started out with today is, why am I here? Do I have any purpose? Am I making any progress? Will what I do have any lasting impact? And the answers I'm here to tell you are only found at the foot of the cross. So when you receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, you're going to receive some benefits by that alignment of your soul with the heart of God. But what also comes with that alignment is obligations, duties, and responsibilities being a member of God's family. And what coming to Jesus Christ and receiving him as Savior and Lord will do is cut away that callous that has conditioned your conscience we talked about, that resensitizes your conscience again to understand what's right or wrong, and then to formulate a biblical worldview that gives you the lens you need to navigate an ever-darkening world and understand the strengths and weaknesses of arguments where you can find the, the, the wrongness in what may be being said as well as the rightness. Right. And that can only be done when you have the prescriptive glasses of a biblical worldview. That's how important it is. So I would encourage you to dig into God's Word for the answers to those basic questions. Uh, what is ultimate reality? What is true personhood? What is the dilemma facing mankind? What is the solution to that dilemma? And what is the ultimate destiny of humans that walk this earth? Yeah, yeah it goes back to that saying that, that Erwin McManus said. He said, there's several, over 7 billion people in the world, and we feel like God's got to fix 7 billion problems. Yeah. He said, no. He said, God needs to fix one problem 7 billion times. <laughs> and that's the heart of a man. Yeah. That's right. That's the heart of a man. I mean, that's what our ministry is all about. Mike, you've been a part of it for a number of years. I've given almost 30 years of my life to this yeah. ministry. And it's to help men understand that transformational change is not a matter of constricting or restraining your behavior to some acceptable standard that's kept in place either by uh, the fellowship you keep, the rules you obey. But um, that... If you want transformational change, you've got to get to the root of the problem and not deal with a symptom. The symptom might be your behavior, but the root of the problem's always been the heart. Yeah. Your beliefs, your values, your attitudes, your worldview, and your motives. And when you align those to the heart of God, all of a sudden, clarity happens. The cataracts removed by sin or any condition of the cataracts ever appearing again are uh, removed from your life so that you see the world as it really is and understand it as God sees it, and understand what's going to be happening. I, I felt it was really interesting. In my devotions yesterday, I, I came across 1 Peter chapter 3, and, it, uh, and let me see if I, I, I can find that passage for us here. I think it's important to, to share it. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. It, it just stood out to me. It was so powerful because it, 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 it helped me understand what's really happening in our world today. Um, and so I want to share with, with uh, our audience, if I can get to it here. Come on, First Peter. Where are you, buddy? Right before Second Peter. There it is, right there. First Peter chapter 3, and or chapter 4. And here, here's what it is. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer, for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, here's the important verse coming up, verse 3. 
for the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do. And now he's referring to Gentiles being anybody that's not a follower of Christ in this right. case. Want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Right, right. And they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here we are, this lawless idolatry. And in that time when, when, when Peter was writing this, there were some states, some nations who considered idolatry a part of their religion. And so you could do anything. I mean, that's where some of the despicable practices of idolatry came to light because there was no law against them. So we live in that age again of lawless idolatry. What are the lawless idolatry? Well, in my view, it's things like transgenderism. Um, it's this whole uh, this dysphoria, uh, uh, gender dysphoria. It's, it's all of this whole idea of not understanding the difference between a, a man and a woman. Right. I mean, these are just examples right. of this lawless, in my uh, view anyway, and what the scripture says of lawless idolatry. But there's going to be a consequence to it. Oh, yeah. Now, anybody who stands up against that as they are today, in any case, they're being, um, you know, disappeared in terms of society. They're being canceled. Canceled, yeah. And so they're being maligned. Their argument, to the contrary of the predisposition and bias of whoever may be living a, an abhorrent lifestyle, um, doesn't matter. So instead, they malign you, as the scripture says. But judgment is coming. So a biblical worldview will help you see these things clearly and understand them for the insidious nature they are um, in terms of the sin that so easily finds its way into the woof and fabric of your soul. Yeah. And so you need a fresh awakening of the Spirit of God so that you can live in bold relief against the backdrop of your culture, prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in you, because the only other option, folks, is to acquiesce fall back into your culture, becoming transparent with it, and there's nothing about your life that'll ever draw anyone to God's son's cross. Right. So we need to start standing up for what we believe, but we have to do it with gentleness and respect, right. not with being the loudest voice in the room, but just to share as God leads us to share. Is this a hill God wants us to bleed on to make our stand, recognizing that we're going to live with the consequences of those decisions? And that's what it means to be part of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Well. And as Paul says, we fight the good fight of faith. Yeah. You know? yeah. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, as we always end our podcast, strengthen, strengthen on, on, sir. <laughs>